This is Talk of the Town on Magic 590 AM, also heard on 100.5 FM. I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is Chris Churchill, Albany Times Union news columnist. Wanted to start with the national scene, then kind of go down to the uh, local scene, because you're right about uh, a number of things in your column. You did a column, uh, which I think you headlined, Poo Pits, <laughs> which was a reference uh, to uh, President Trump and his alleged uh, remarks about Haiti and some African uh, uh, countries. What was the case you were making in that uh, column? I know it was, go ahead. Uh, my case was that, yeah, you know, he he had used some kind of derogatory terms for uh, Haiti and some African countries, and you know, and my my point was that most of us are from countries. Most of us came here because we're from countries that were struggling, mm. right? And I think that's kind of the American immigration story. And so to denigrate people who are from a uh, a struggling country who want to come here and better their lives, to me, uh, it struck me as, you know, more than unfortunate. And or even if these countries are not struggling today, let's maybe say Italy. Or, right, or, Italy. Yeah. Italy, when, people, when the, you know, we had mass migration from southern Italy, it was mostly because there wasn't enough food and there was disease and there weren't, you know, the economy was terrible. The same with Ireland. I mean, you can go down through history and most people who came here came here because they were being pushed out of their own country as much as the draw of this country, right? I mean, you don't mm-hmm. you don't give up everything you've ever known, say goodbye to all your family, say goodbye to your culture, say goodbye to everything to go into this unknown place without a pretty a pretty good reason. And usually that's because you're hungry or because um you don't see a future for your children in that country. Mm. And the, and you know, and that I I thought that you know, Trump's comments kind of um kind of went against or contrary to that kind of American history, you know. Mm-hmm. But yet, uh, well, not but yet, <laughs> another <laughs> view of, of Trump uh, in your first column of the year, uh, you you said that Trump will continue to be Trump. Yeah. Can you explain that? Well, I think, I think a lot of us thought, and I, I think I thought that when he took office, I thought two things. I thought he might be more extreme in the way he actually governed. I thought we might see more extreme policies. The, some of the things he had talked about on the campaign trail, you know, mass deportation or um, new libel laws or things that would kind mm-hmm. of make us make me worried anyways. We haven't seen that much of that. But I also thought when he took office that he would make kind of make a pivot toward being more presidential, that we wouldn't see the kind of the Twitter outbursts and the kind of the same sort of language. I thought, you know, so I think at this point we just have to accept that the Twitter stuff is going to continue and that he's going to continue to say extreme and kind of disturbing things on Twitter. Mm. Um, I'm not saying we should ignore those, but, you know, it's just maybe we don't have to react to them quite the same way as – as we maybe we would have any other president said these things. All right. Well, let's leave President Trump. Move on to Governor Cuomo. Ah, Andrew Cuomo, our own President Trump. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Well, he's got uh, some. I, he's Trumpy at times. He's Trumpy at times. Well, he, he's loud often, isn't he? He, he is loud. Often yes. yells in his speech. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, some of the little, you know, the sort of humor points. I, I did enjoy your comment on his podium and the state of the state message. The massive, he, massive and podium. I, and I, like many people, I had not seen that speech, but I then looked up a picture. I mean, it is, it's this big 
It's, it's something. I know, and I think the impression it's supposed to give is of great power and strength, but it actually makes him look kind of tiny, you know, because he looks like a little kid trying to look over the steering wheel when he's at that thing. Well, let's start off with uh, the scandals. I mean, this is, as they say, breaking news. I mean, uh, we're recording on Wednesday. I don't know if what uh, is going to happen this rest of this week, but one of his uh, close confidants or uh, aides is on trial in New York City right now. Yeah. Yeah, we have a reporter down there right now who's who's covering for covering it for us day by day, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that and how how close it gets to the governor. I mean, um, this aide is a is a close family friend. He is about as close as you can get without actually being, you know, <laughs> the governor himself or one of his uh, you know top lieutenants. But um, it, yeah, I, this is going to be something. I mean, this is. This is happening at the start of an election year, and normally this would be the worst possible scenario for a governor to have, you know, a drumbeat of of negative news and a trial that could possibly expose, you know, God knows what happening in New York City, where the tabloids will actually pay attention to it. Um, but he, but he seems to be, in, he seems to have no worries because there is no real credible GOP uh, threat or a gubernatorial candidate coming up against him at this point. Yeah. There was Harry. You wrote about him for a while. Yeah, Harry Wilson. He was yeah. a great, he was the kind of the great hope of the GOP. He's this uh, downstate businessman who's originally from upstate New York. And he had the money to kind of self-fund his own campaign. But I think he took a look at the political wins and decided this, this you know, this is not a good year. It looks like a, a year where this kind of anti-Trump fervor is going to carry a lot of Democrats, uh, it's going to be this blue wave of mm-hmm. of of um, democratic voting. I just thought, I think he looked at the at the the uh, landscape and decided this is, this isn't a good time. And that blue wave, at least in New York State, <clears throat> certainly benefits uh, Andrew Cuomo. It would seem to. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard for if you get a lot of motivated Democrats who just come to the polls. A lot of them are just going to vote for that D. You know, and you know a lot of these kind of off-term or non-presidential elections. Sometimes you don't get those those people who don't who aren't necessarily the hardcores, but there's this feeling that um, Trump is going to motivate a lot of Democrats to get to the polls, even if he's not on the ballot. Mm. You did uh, a column about uh, Governor Cuomo and state uh, finances, pointing out that the governor, in his state of the state message, never talked about cuts to wasteful spending. Yeah, uh, even though the state is facing a four billion dollar deficit. Yeah, I would have liked. I mean, he's. They're talking about a billion dollars in new taxes and fees, and I, me personally, I don't think that's a really wise direction for the state to go in. I, I would have liked to have seen more, um, more talk about cuts to to programs. Um, but there wasn't. There wasn't much of that. Mostly, he talked about the federal government, and um, kind of in a sense, blamed the state's fiscal problems on on Trump, which is a stretch, I think. Mm. But, you know, that's probably a card that he will uh, continue to play. Um, yeah, it's going to work. I mean, it's definitely yeah. going to work, especially in New York City downstate. Yeah. Yeah. And the Republicans not having a champion, if you will, is, or well, they have, for example, Brian Kolb, who is running for yeah. governor. I mean, he'll make this case, but whether he gets heard in the, right. in the news cycles, probably the question. But it is probably unusual for... for uh, a sitting governor to to say things are tough. I mean, but he he certainly could have in this in this case. 
You know what I mean? They yeah, say, yeah. Know. And he did say things are tough. I mean, he acknowledged the size of the deficit, I, I believe, and he he talked a lot about you know federal tax reform and what it could mean for New York. He he, def- it was definitely a more downbeat um, uh, budget speech than than Cuomo normally gives. But how could it not be? I mean, a four billion dollar deficit is a four billion dollar deficit. I mean, you'd be burying your head in the sand to to ignore that and to say everything is rosy. Mm. Right? And, and just one uh, final thought on Governor Cuomo. Do you talk to him? Do you interview him? Or no, no, no. He he keeps himself pretty well shielded from the press. Mm. Yeah, and, was, and I'm not I'm not one of the people who's down at the Capitol every day. I'm not a right, Capitol reporter. Right. Yeah, but I mean, that's one area where he's different from his father. I mean, his father was quite accessible. In, in, He'd get mad at at you and right. uh, and so forth, but he didn't kind of cut you off after getting mad. You know. You, yeah. You know. No. He he is pretty inaccessible. Um, and you know he has reason to be. With other, he doesn't want to be asked about the trials. Mm, well, yeah. You know, I'm sh- I'm sure he doesn't want to be asked about presidential ambitions. There are a lot of things he doesn't want to be asked about. Of course, there are a lot of things that most politicians don't want to be asked about, but most of them. Or many of them make themselves a lot more accessible than he does. And uh, I saw on your uh, Facebook page you, uh, you were taking pro and con on a column you had recently done. You kind mm. of explained what what that means to be a news columnist. Since I brought it up, what does it mean? It means uh, it means there's going to be some opinion or take in what I write most times. It means that um, there's a point of view. It's not traditional news reporting where you try to keep your own personal opinion out of it. It's, you know, it's, uh, um, but there is also reporting. It's not, it's not just, you know, um, pontificating, pontificating, right. It's not the kind of stuff you see on cable news every night. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the story that engendered uh, that uh, question and, cri- and there were some criticisms was your uh, column. You've done a couple of them in the recent weeks about the, um, uh, case out of Troy, a Troy police sergeant shot a man uh, eight times through the windshield of the man's car when the sergeant said he was pinned uh, against uh, a police cruiser by the the man's car. And then the attorney general's office uh, investigated. Uh, What did you find uh, important in the attorney general's report? Well, it was, first of all, it was scathing. It was um, about as strongly worded a report as I've, as I've ever seen in terms of, you know, assessing the behavior of a police department. Um, essentially, it found that the, that that was not true, that it was not true that the sergeant uh, had been pinned, was pinned to the car when he started a fire. Mm. Um, and cite, And they were citing their... Uh, what you call forensic evidence? Forensic evidence, and also just you know they put rods into the uh, into the windshield to see which direction the bullets had come from, and they had come from all different directions essentially. Therefore, he couldn't have been pinned in one place. He had to have been moving around. Was the assessment of the report, um, which means that the basic ex- reason that was given for the shooting was um, untrue, and it means. It certainly suggests that the police department knew it was untrue all along, but yet continued to repeat that untruth. Mm. Uh, in the attorney general's office, and I, don't, I don't believe Eric Schneiderman, who's the attorney general, personally investigated this. Right? No, no, no. I'm sure he oversaw it, and I'm yeah. sure he read the report before it went out. But yeah, it was it was done. But he did not recommend 
the report did not recommend charges against the police officer, but criticized the Troy Police Department. That's right. That's right. Uh, subsequently, the former police chief of, of Troy, who had just uh, retired, um, wrote a letter to the editor of the Troy Record, very critical of the attorney general mm-hmm. and end of your column. Right. Um, and the one point he made is that he said neither the attorney general's investigators nor you had had talked to him. Have you talked to him since? I have. I talked to him um, the day before yesterday. I thought, so that letter was odd in, in a number of respects. A, I was a little surprised to see my 800-word column treated as essentially equal to the 221-page attorney general's report, which blasted the police department. Um, he, that we're talking about former chief uh, uh, Tedesco, he, he, he called the attorney general a madman. He um, threw some insinuations about the people who had investigated and, and, uh, and, and who had done the investigation that led to the report. He criticized everything about the report except its finding, which, you know, the part about how the sergeant must have been moving around when he fired the shots. And I, to me, it seemed a little bit, a little bit strange. It's true that I hadn't called him, but he, uh, the police department had um, uh, declined comment. So, the, you know, I but I, I subsequently talked to the chief, and uh, he he declined essentially declined comment too. So, it, a little bit of a strange situation. But isn't it unusual that the, the attorney general investigators didn't talk to him, or do, do we have we heard them say that? Yeah, we never. Yeah, I suppose that would be. I, if that's true, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if they'll if they'll have a different take on that. But that 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 would seem to be a little bit unusual. Sure. Let's move on over to the city of Albany. The, the thing that I f- found interesting the past couple of weeks, it kind of maybe didn't surprise you, but surprised me that uh, Mayor Kathy Sheehan and her husband buying a fixer upper on Arbor Hill. Yeah, yeah, in the Tenbrook neighborhood. Yeah, yeah which is uh, the neighborhood that's kind of. Very, very close to the Palace Theater, right off Clinton Avenue. There, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. You know, uh, I've I haven't written about this, but I've thought about writing about it, and maybe I, maybe I will at some point. But um, it's an interesting move. I mean, you don't see very many politicians um, moving into neighborhoods that are that have troubles. You know, most politicians live in kind of enclaves or bubbles, and uh, I think she deserves some credit for doing this. You know. Uh, Jack McEnany, kind of an Albany historian, I didn't write the name down, yeah. but he said the last mayor to live in Arbor Hill was somebody in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. So. And it's actually been very unusual to have a mayor of Albany live in the heart of the city, even. Yeah. Well, I mean, Corning lived on the outskirts, Jennings lived on the outskirts, Wayland lived kind of in a more, a little bit, still a suburban style neighborhood, you know, it's... Um, and I recall there was criticism of Corning in that... He had had another house and didn't spend much time in the home that he had in Albany. Yeah, it's almost like mayors have been almost eager to get as almost as far away from downtown and city hall as they possibly could. Right. She'll be able to walk to work. You know? Yeah, I, I saw her quote about that. They can walk to work. They can walk downtown and yeah. So and on. you know, I don't know that this is going to have a huge impact on policy, but you know, it might to have a mayor who's personally personally knows what it means not to have sidewalks shoveled for example or parking issues or crime or all those things i mean it it's a it'll be it'll be interesting another column you wrote about albany about the argus press building mm-hmm. the old argus press building i believe that was a former newspaper in the city but i'm not 
positive. Yeah. But it's on Broadway in Albany's warehouse district. Can this building be saved? I think it could be. I think you're going to need, you know, deep-pocketed owners. Uh, for people who don't know the building, it's kind of a pretty landmark building in the warehouse district. And it's and the warehouse district is a place where there's been a lot of a lot of renovation, a lot of you know restaurants and bars moving in, um, apartments. It's kind of booming with apartments, and a lot of people look at the Argus Building and they think, well, that that really should be the next building to be renovated because it's one of the most sign- architecturally significant and most beautiful buildings. Well, it could be one of the most beautiful buildings in the neighborhood, but it has kind of languished under um, some kind of difficult ownership, and that owner um, actually lost the building to foreclosure, and now the county is preparing, or at least was prepared, to sell the building back to that same owner, um, which struck a lot of people as a as a kind of a poor choice. Mm. But they said they don't want to give up on an owner or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, he owes a lot of back taxes, and they want they want that money, which is understandable. And they they have kind of this sense that well, the building is belongs to a, belongs to somebody. They don't want to be seen as taking property away from people unnecessarily. So there's a little bit of leeway. Also, the the county is not really in a position to know what to do with large commercial structures. And I think that they also worry about the potential for environmental pollution. Um, but this is a building that a lot of developers have expressed interest in over the years. I think there would be a lot of interest in, in renovating it, and it would ultimately be for the best, both for taxpayers and for the city if the building is rehabbed. Let me ask you before we run out of time about the Child Victims Act. Will the state enact this uh, act this year? Legislation, as I understand it, would eliminate uh, the statute of limitations for sexual sexual abuse crimes against children. Yeah, that's right. New York is one of the earliest uh, statute of limitations, or one of the quickest ones, um, which has had the effect of a lot of uh, uh, sexual crimes against children not being prosecuted. Um, so there's this Child Victims Act, which would uh, essentially push that statute of limitations way back. Um, and it looks good for passage, actually. It's actually in the governor's budget, so which is was not was not known when I wrote that column. So oh, is that right? Is it is you, right, yeah. You were yeah. wondering if uh, Governor Cuomo would this, uh, really push for this. Yeah, it seems like he has because it's in his budget, and um, it's probably one of those items that doesn't really belong in the budget. You know, <laughs> It's not really ex- essentially budgetary, but I think he puts things in there sometimes that uh, um, he forces the legislature right. to strip them out rather than just not have a vote on them with, one way or the other. You've been listening to Talk of the Town on Magic 590, also heard on 100.5 FM. Our guest was Chris Churchill, Albany Times Union news columnist. Read his column Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays in the TU. Next week on Talk of the Town, our guest will be Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan. I'm Bob Cudmore.